The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Caleb Benjamin, intern at Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for December 9th, 2023. This past week, Ashley Deeks wrote an article in Lawfare unpacking why the U.S. and China have failed to make progress toward an agreement to keep autonomy out of nuclear command and control systems. Meanwhile, the United States, Russia, Australia, Israel, and others have argued that no new international law is needed to address autonomy and warfare. And over the summer, Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks announced the U.S. military would field attritable autonomous systems at scale of multiple thousands in the coming two years so as to compete with China. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from November 6, 2013, in which Benjamin Wittes shared edited audio of a talk given by Kenneth Anderson and Matthew Waxman on autonomous weapons and calls for a preemptive ban in international law on so-called killer robots. Welcome to the Lawfare Podcast. I'm Benjamin Wittes. Today on the podcast, the second installment in a series of presentations made at the Hoover Institution on October 25th to a group of distinguished journalists Hoover gathered for a media colloquium with its task force on national security and law. This presentation was given by two people who need no introduction to Lawfare readers, Matt Waxman, who speaks first, and Kenneth Anderson, who speaks second. It deals with autonomous weapons and the calls on the part of human rights groups for a preemptive international law ban on autonomous lethal firing power. The discussion is, once again, edited both for length and because not all of the journalists present consented to have their portions of the audio used. Great. Well, uh, uh, thanks very much. So so this is not a talk about armed drones or, or UAVs per se, uh, but it does look back on the last 10 years uh, history of drones in order to draw some general lessons for U.S. policy and then apply them to some future uh, weapon technologies that Ken and I uh, have been studying. And before talking about those future technologies, let me, let me begin by emphasizing three general points. 
Uh, the first is that historically it's often been the case that, uh, that new weapon technologies give rise to fears that their emergence, their deployment on the battlefield will destroy the existing legal and ethical constraints on warfare. Uh, 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 it'll tear down the existing ethical edifice that governs uh, 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 battlefield activity. And this raises questions whether they should just be banned outright. This has been a story with some technologies going back centuries, the crossbow, the submarine, uh, the bomber airplane, and, and so on. Rare Rarely uh, do proposed bans of these new weapons work, especially if uh, at least one side sees them as very effective. Uh, uh, and often, I think, in retrospect, these worries about new technologies undermining the law and ethics of warfare turn out to be pr prove, uh, uh, in hindsight, to be overblown. Uh, the second point is that the United States has a strategic interest in demonstrating to the world that the existing body of the laws of war, or international humanitarian law, can be adapted to effectively govern uh, new weapon technologies coming online, and also a, a strategic interest in setting through its own actions, the United States' own actions, a very high standard for complying with those laws. I think there are legal, there are obvious legal and moral reasons for this, but we think that this is in the, in the U.S. strategic interest, too. It's in our interest to strengthen the laws of war uh, uh, and to demonstrate that the laws of war uh, are a robust uh, uh, system capable of striking reasonable balance balances between security and humanitarian concerns into the future. Uh, uh, and, and, and I think uh, 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 these objectives also are important to sustaining domestic uh, uh, and political support for our military actions, to raising costs to our adversaries or rivals who might try to gain a, an advantage by violating those laws and so forth. Uh, the third general point to, to begin with is that the last 10 years history with regard to drones demonstrate demonstrates, I think, very clearly that this set of goals that I just articulated, demonstrating to the world that the existing body of the laws of war can be adapted to uh, effectively govern new weapon technologies and setting through its actions, the United States, uh, a gold standard for complying with those laws, th those, those goals are in some tension with operational and bureaucratic tendencies towards secrecy. Uh, I, I think it's, it's hard to get this balance right uh, and to get the right, uh, to sort of to calibrate the right balance between a desire to, to prove the utility and compliance with the laws of war and, uh, and the desire to maintain operational secrecy, in part because even if you buy into our proposition uh, uh, that shaping international law is a, a, a core strategic interest of the United States, when it comes to day-to-day operational decisions, those goals always, it's always easy to see those goals as distant and diffuse, whereas the imperatives of secrecy seem much more immediate and, and tangible. And so uh, while I uh, applaud President Obama, uh, uh, for example, for a number of the speeches he's given, the kind of presidential and cabinet-level speeches that we talked about in the last session are helpful, but they don't get this done. Uh, the Obama administration is not nearly as transparent on these matters as it thinks it is. My own experience working inside the government, uh, including on presidential speeches regarding counterterrorism policies, for example, is that you always, you, you always think on the inside that you're being a lot more transparent than you really are. <laughs> 
um, I, I, I think the I think the the, the kind of of uh, I, 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 agenda that Ken and I are talking about requires a much more sustained effort and requires getting into a level of detail about operational practices uh, uh, that that. The U.S. government, including the Obama administration, has been very reluctant to do. So, for example, I think the United States could be doing a much better job of communicating uh, uh, about exactly how it avoids collateral damage, uh, 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 how it assesses collateral damage after strikes and, and so forth. Uh, uh, and as a result, the United States has largely lost control of the public and international debate about drones. I think the, the latest reports from human rights groups this week help, help to show that. So with those three general points uh, uh, about technology and U.S. interests in the laws of war, let me I, 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 I sort of pivot and, and look to the future a bit and talk about some technologies, uh, in particular autonomous weapon systems that, that Ken and I are interested in, because I think those lessons of the past can really help guide us in thinking about a policy for the future. So what if uh, uh, armed drones that we've been talking about already today were not just piloted remotely by humans uh, in faraway bunkers in a, in a desert, uh, but they were programmed under certain circumstances to select and fire at some targets entirely on their own? Uh, 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 this may sound like science fiction, and deployment of such systems is indeed far off. Uh, but as Ken is going to talk a, a little bit more about in, in his remarks, uh, policy decisions, legal debates, uh, 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 research and development decisions are, are already taking place now uh, uh, and in ways that could radically affect the future development of these kinds of systems. Uh, uh, in addition, uh, 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 many human rights uh, uh, NGOs joined last week by a new international International Coalition of Computing Scientists have been calling for a policy of preemptively banning the development of and use of uh, autonomous weapon systems. Uh, we think the United States uh, uh, should re resist that prohibition. Uh, uh, that's one of the main points we want to make today. The United States policy should be to resist that call for a ban or prohibition, and not just uh, uh, out of concerns for military efficacy, uh, but for some important moral reasons as well. Uh, 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 but to do so, uh, uh, to, I think to effectively resist those calls for a ban, uh, uh, it's important that the United States present a viable alternative. And doing so in particular, I think, shows uh, requires showing that the laws of war, as I said before, can be effectively adapted in order to, to, to regulate these technologies effectively. So at this point, no, uh, uh, no country has yet at least publicly evinced plans um, to use fully autonomous weapon systems specifically to target humans. Uh, uh, some countries, including the United States, though, already use autonomous or nearly autonomous systems for targeting other machines. Examples include uh, anti-missile uh, defense systems aboard uh, uh, Navy ships, for example, that will autonomously, once, once flipped on and perhaps with some degree of human oversight, will, uh, will target incoming missiles. And this technology is useful because uh, uh, in order to defend against Against large numbers of, of incoming missiles uh, requires decision making beyond the, 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 the capacity for, for human decision making. Uh, we expect, though, there to be broader application of autonomous weapons, uh, 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 including possibly against human targets, emerging incrementally in the future. 
uh, I say incrementally, uh, and I want to emphasize that point, because rather than a sudden shift from uh, human control to machine control when it comes to weapon systems, I think in, in many contexts, uh, uh, we're more likely to see uh, 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 greater and greater automation being added gradually, uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, more aspects of, of, of firing decisions being automated, the human role sh uh, gradually shifting from being in full control to a role of, of oversight or perhaps overriding potential decisions by a, by a machine. And we see this, uh, this evolution towards autonomous machine decision-making on the battlefield as inevitable for a couple of reasons. Some of it driven by technology as machine sensors, analytics, machine learning uh, improve. Uh, uh, as states demand greater protection for uh, uh, their own military personnel as well as for civilians, uh, 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 as new weapon uh, 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 other weapon technologies, perhaps uh, what are sometimes called less than lethal technologies, come online, and also as similar automation technologies show up uh, 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 in other areas of society and prove to be uh, uh, better than human decision makers, even when there are lethal consequences at stake, uh, 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 driverless cars, uh, uh, robotic surgery, and, and so forth. And I think we're going to uh, uh, accept more and more machine automated and, and autonomous decision making, uh, not just because we think that it's more efficient, uh, uh, it, it eases burdens on humans, um, but because we find that they, are, they do a better job than in, in, in certain tasks than, than human decision makers. So when, bringing us back to, to weapons, uh, proponents of banning autonomous weapons, usually by proposing some sort of global treaty, uh, uh, usually argue, among other things, that these systems risk uh, dehumanizing warfare, uh, thereby eroding ethical constraints on it. Uh, uh, and they also tend to argue that artificial intelligence is never going to be capable of meeting the requirements of the laws of war. For example, uh, uh, the requirement of, discri uh, of, of discriminating between uh, uh, legitimate military targets and civilian targets. Uh, uh, that there will uh, machines will never be capable of <laughs> accurately and legally making judgments about proportionality and avoiding excessive collateral damage. Uh, uh, as a moral matter, I think many critics uh, and proponents of banning autonomous weapon systems also don't believe that, the, that, that as a, just as a, as a moral matter, decisions to intentionally kill should ever be delegated uh, uh, to machines. Uh, uh, and they also believe that as a practical matter, uh, 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 there are just too many uncertainties. Machines are going to operate in unpredictable ways or be used perhaps in irresponsible, even, even ruthless ways. Uh, 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 for us, uh, I think part of our argument is that a treaty ban is unlikely to work, though, especially in constraining those states whose uh, uh, behavior we're most concerned about. Uh, 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 but we also believe that uh, because automation uh, moving towards full autonomy of weapons will increase gradually, step by step, uh, uh, it's not nearly as easy to design and enforce the kind of treaty prohibition that NGOs are calling for uh, as, 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 as I think they believe. Uh, uh, in any event, though, even if it were possible, I think if the goal of a ban 
if the goal of regulating autonomous weapon systems is to reduce suffering, to protect human lives, then, uh, then we think a ban may be uh, uh, counterproductive and even dangerous. Uh, besides the self-protective advantages of, uh, uh, to military forces that might use autonomous weapon systems, it's quite possible that autonomous machine decision-making may, at least in some contexts, reduce risks to civilians uh, by making targeting decisions more precise, by uh, making targeting uh, decisions more, more controlled. Uh, uh, it's true uh, that I, I, I think advocates of artificial intelligence have at times in past decades overpromised before. There's this allure of technology and somehow artificial intelligence never quite seems to, to live up to its, its initial promise. And I think we should be careful about putting our faith in, in these kinds of technologies. Uh, at the same time, though, we also know for certain that humans are limited in their capacity to make sound and ethical decisions on the battlefield. Uh, uh, and that's partly a result of, of just inherent limits of human brain capacity, but it's also the result of things like sensory error, fear, anger, fatigue, and other features that machine decision-making may, in some contexts, be able to, to compensate for. We also believe that as a moral matter, uh, states should be striving to use the most sparing methods or means of war fair and at some point at some point uh, uh, that may include autonomous machine decision makings now nobody can say with certainty how much automation technologies might gradually reduce the the harms of warfare our argument though is that it would be morally wrong uh, not to seek such gains if they can be can be had uh, the idea uh, of, of sort of cutting off research and development into these systems before we even know how effective they can be or not now, to be, to be very, very clear, uh, our, our argument here is not that autonomous weapon systems warrant no special regulation uh, uh, or that the United States should heedlessly rush to develop them. I think uh, that's been one of the perceptions of U.S. use of drones is that we sort of, that we, we, we deploy and shoot first and then ask questions about ethics and law later. Uh, I, 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 and I think uh, uh, what, what, what Ken and I have argued at length in a, a policy paper is that a much better solution than a global ban is to adapt uh, the existing laws of war to deal with autonomous systems. Uh, uh, how would we do that? Uh, uh, first, uh, the United States should set very high standards internally for assessing legally and ethically uh, uh, any research and development programs in this area and for continually assessing legally and eth ethically any use of such systems. And importantly, uh, uh, and here's, I, I think, one of the critical lessons drawn from our, our experience with drones, uh, uh, the United States needs to be prepared to discuss publicly as much as possible about exactly how it conducts those reviews according to what metrics and, and, and so forth. Second, uh, I think to make this policy work, the United States can't go it alone. Uh, it should work with a coalition of like-minded partners to try to set some standards and, and develop best practices in this area. Some allies have already shown an, an, an interest, a, a like-mindedness on these issues. Recently, the British government, for example, responded to NGO calls for a ban by, by, by instead declaring its view that the existing international law of war, law of armed conflict, 
conflict already provides a, a strong framework that if the British were to develop these kinds of systems, uh, uh, could provide a, a, a robust set of, 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 of rules and standards and, 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 and also uh, suggesting that the British government is, uh, is interested in engaging in the, a cooperative uh, development of standards to, to govern these kinds of systems. So uh, I, it just, I, I'll close and turn it over to Ken by saying uh, uh, that uh, I, I think our, our, if I were to, to sum up in a, in a sentence our view, it's that autonomous weapon systems are not inherently unethical or unlawful, and provided that we start now, uh, uh, they can be made to serve the ends of law, the, the laws of war on the battlefield. Thank you. I'm going to actually be much shorter and really just insert some comments that go inside the structure that Matt has already laid out. Um, and really, they're sort of detailed comments that fit within that outline. So the first of these is to emphasize this incremental uh, point, to emphasize that, for example, drones uh, that are a remotely piloted vehicle today are gradually becoming more automated as the technology advances. And this is most visible in the flying around parts of the machine, namely the ability to sort of land and take off and do this sort of stuff. Uh, and that will gradually be an accumulation of technologies that automates the platform until the point of which um, the sum becomes greater, though the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts, uh, and enables something that could be automated to be able to do it completely by itself. Um, not necessarily autonomous, if by autonomous one means at that stage the ability to select where it decides to go, but to be able to execute a flight path, get itself off the ground, go land someplace. But that does not actually tell us anything about weapons. The decision to decide to um, automate the weapon system where DOD's definition of an autonomous weapon system is, I think, pretty widely accepted. Uh, and it says that it's a system, if it's fully autonomous, that is able to select its own targets and engage them uh, on its own once the switch is flipped. And that decision is one that uh, is very different from deciding that it would be uh, safer and better for the technology if it were able to land itself. And uh, that decision about whether to make that weapon firing selection of targets autonomous is something that involves, certainly within um, DOD's understanding of its obligations under the laws of war, a very, very major uh, step. And one of the things that I think is puzzling to, or certainly was a surprise to the Department of Defense, and at least in my conversations with lawyers there, um, was that they were quite taken by surprise by the idea that a ban campaign would emerge looking to prohibit autonomous weapons um, because they had a completely different sense about what threats they were looking to counter. So if the threats are, as Matt has described, that you have a gazillion little tiny missiles coming independently at you from a zillion different angles, um, unless you find a way to counter all of those missiles, the ship is very likely going to sink. And 
those are events are taking place at faster than human reaction speeds, and we've had a policy in place of building counter-missile systems that are uh, very highly automated that run all the way back to the 1980s. And that doesn't seem to actually present a great problem. You're addressing machine-on-machine -machine threats. Um, there may well be uh, human beings who are inside those machines. Um, those human beings will by and large be lawful targets in war in any case, but you're targeting the machine. Uh, and that has not been understood to really present a problem. So it, it I think, was actually uh, something of a surprise to people at DOD to see a campaign for banning these things that was based around um, a very futuristic, frankly, sci-fi and somewhat cartoonish idea that uh, the U.S.'s development efforts were designed to produce kind of marching automated robot soldiers going onto the battlefield to hunt down um, enemies and kill them. Uh, and to do so in the most difficult conceivable environment of hidden fighters among a civilian population in a crowded urban area this is kind of beyond what anybody that I was aware of has ever been thinking. It leads me to a second point, which is DARPA is not the Department of Defense. Okay. When DARPA comes up as an independent thing with its own sort of VC people and folks like that on its board and puts out these sort of proposals for contests and the rest, this is a very, very, very long way from what actually the procurement process, the weapons design process, the legal review process that takes place at DOD. And that process at DOD, we have been encouraging them, and I think that they've actually already long taken on board, um, says that in effect, the review process for weapons development needs to involve uh, lawyers from the very moment that you get a glimmer uh, in the eye of a designer. And the reason this needs to happen is because it may be that that weapon can never, and you can tell from the outset, is never going to wind up satisfying the requirements of the laws of war, at least for any battlefield use for which you think you're designing it. So. Things that take place between ships at sea will be really different in terms of the lawfulness of their legal uses from that that takes place in a crowded urban setting. And the same technology that's legal in one may not be legal in another. And the lawyers need to be part of that review from the beginning in order to help guide the design path or else to put the brakes on it before it happens. DOD lawyers do this all the time, particularly in the cyber area. And that you know, people come up with all sorts of crazy proposals, and the lawyers shoot them down um, from a fairly you know, early stage. Um, but it's important to understand that what comes out of um, the kind of things that are kind of attached to, but not actually part of the official process, need to be considered very separately. Um, the third point, I guess, that I'd like to um, make is to go to the ban campaign, which um, the ban, as Human Rights Watch has proposed, it calls for something that duplicates, in effect, the landmines ban campaign from the early 1990s. And I feel personally in a somewhat awkward situation because I was the first director of the Human Rights Watch landmine um, arms division that is doing this at Human Rights Watch. And, I can't tell you how proud I am of the work that I did in trying to get anti-personnel landmines banned at that point and am to this day. But I don't think that these 
non-existent evolving future weapons are remotely like a landmine. Landmines, we know what the technology is, we know what the capabilities are, we know why it's an indiscriminate weapon, and there are no trade-offs except for maybe some amount of force protection when you do it. And this could not be at a greater contrast to the kinds of technologies that we don't know where things are going to go. We don't know what the trade-offs are going to be in terms of the ability to more precisely target, the ability to reduce the harms on the battlefield. Uh, and we just don't know what those trade-offs are. And the second part of uh, Human Rights Watch's call for a ban, which has been embraced by a number of the NGOs, has a vague but really, I think, quite disturbing uh, call for a ban on development of technologies. And then the language gets vague. It doesn't say ban the technologies that could lead to, but it says they have to be reviewed. Uh, and there the review seems to be pointing at something that, and again, the language is vague and I recommend looking at it, um, but it says they have to be reviewed uh, for the possibility that they might lead, that technologies or components of technologies that might lead to an autonomous lethal weapon uh, need to be reviewed from the earliest stages, and it's not clear reviewed for what. Um, but I think the question that arises here is, why one would want to ban things in research and development where there could be enormous gains for battlefield reduction of harm to everybody involved? Um, why would one want to do that? Um, my guess actually is that it's because it's been modeled on the idea that, that these robot weapons should be understood in the way that bioweapons are understood. And you need to get a hold of the graduate student in the bioweapon area who's got his or her hands on a you know, genetic machinery uh, and has the blueprint for smallpox. And the moment that that grad student even starts to get close to you know, anything remotely <coughs> like that, and you need to put the kibosh on that and kind of end it up front. And that's because it's self-replicating. But the robots we're talking about are not self-replicating. We're talking about technological <coughs> paths uh, where there can be enormous um, beneficial effects in terms of controlling harm on the battlefield. It may be that we never get to the point that any of these things, insofar as they're involved in either directly targeting humans or targeting humans in civilian environments, we maybe never get even close to the ability um, to actually flip on the weapon and tell it to go do its thing. But we also don't know how close we will get to that and in leaving humans still in the loop to be able to help uh, monitor and be on the loop or in the loop for those processes, we actually achieve a sort of combination that turns out to be fantastically more precise and fantastically safer. Now, the two other things that I guess I'd say would be this form of ban cannot work because the technologies that are going to be at issue for making a weapon system genuinely autonomous are going to be pretty much identical to the technologies that will be spread throughout the civilian uh, area. Self-driving cars, the robotic surgery, I mean, just the list goes on and on. And it's, I think, if it turns out that those technologies play out as people are hoping they will, and I haven't the faintest idea, I don't know how far they'll get. But if it turns out that those automation technologies turn out to be vastly more effective in the self-driving car area, for example, it's 
I think pretty difficult to imagine that a future generation that has grown up with the cars driving themselves around and we see visible increases in safety and people understand and accept that, it's impossible for you to imagine that they're not going to both be comfortable with but also demand on practical but also moral grounds that these technologies at least be made available to see whether they can be adapted to make war um, a less harmful um, thing as well. And so the, the question of the spread of these things into civilian technologies also raises an enormous moral question. Should you be cutting off the development of these things before you know what it is they can offer in an environment in which these things are going to be widely adapted for civilian uses in many ways? Weapons can be thought of as different, and I do think of them as different, in the sense that um, the decision to affirmatively direct aim and kill somebody does seem to me to be different morally from the decision that one commits over to an elder care robot to have to decide when to call 911. One of these involves an intention to actually intentionally kill somebody. The other one is really an attempt to save somebody's life and has to make decisions about what the thresholds for acting are. From the standpoint of programming, programming the actual machine itself, it's not really clear that those aren't essentially the same kind of decision-making um, behaviors. And the reason is that robots don't have intention. They've got behaviors, and those behaviors are programmed. So I think I would wind up saying that there's actually a moral obligation to both shape the regulation of all of this stuff in ways that is going to wind up being um, protective of people on the battlefield and also to enable us to use these kind of technologies more broadly in society and that to fail to go down that path from a fear that it turns into a kind of killer robot scenario is I think actually quite mistaken. And the last point then is a, uh, a, a, a plea to myself as well as everybody else. Um, when Matt and I first wrote on this subject, we entitled the paper something that referred to robot soldiers. Um, we are as in love with sci-fi in this area as everybody else is. We cannot resist the impulse to frame this all in terms of the Terminator. Um, we, like everybody else in this, I went to deliver a, a speech to people telling them not to refer to sci-fi and immediately raised Asimov's three laws. I could not control myself. <laughs> and I think that many of us are in that situation, but I'd like to suggest that at this stage, um, those of us who write in this area need to sort of take a step back and ask ourselves whether the reach to sci-fi future technologies and to sort of works of the imagination in this area um, brings with it such a sort of structure of the ways we automatically, you know, we automatically fall into a Philip K. Dick novel, right, every time we sort of go down this path, but that's not where the technologies are. They're at really boring places about automating this little bit and that little bit. And the real task of the lawyers is to try and see whether that in that context is going to be within the law. And it's just nowhere near as an imaginatively exciting. Um, but it is, I think, how one winds up achieving over the longer term the effective regulation of these devices without attempting to smother the technology from the beginning. So I guess my last plea is no more sci-fi. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. 
They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Spencer's going to start us off. <laughs> yeah, a couple, um, a, a couple different questions. Um, first on area of focus... I'm surprised you guys didn't discuss any of the actual hardware that you, you do see sort of encroaching into this. Um, first, um, this discussion sort of at least implicitly categorized uh, drone technology and autonomy within one framework. But you're seeing, at least in terms of the actual weapon system, the greater autonomy advancement is in missile technology. And to some degree in the transformation of particularly small UAVs into something that's more like a missile than it is an airframe. Secondly, when it comes to the civilian casualty question, to some degree, and increasingly in, in, in this context, the limitation in terms of casualty is an effect of the size of the ordnance. You know, when, when you've... The, the drone is an airframe is, is rarely a particularly sophisticated airframe. They're often just very bad aircraft. They can't carry that much. And, you know, when you talk to uh, weapons developers in this field, the big challenge is increasingly miniaturization rather than um, making the ordinance itself more of a precise thing. It's just small enough that it's not able to kill very many people outside of a, you know, the context of destroying a structure where a lot of people might, might be in there. And then finally, when we're really discussing you know, the gradual advance of automation as it immediately applies to either a battlefield weapon or a weapon, um, or a platform at least, um, with real concerns about its impact on, on ethics, on law, and on how we conduct military operations. Why are we not discussing where this really is a very advanced field, which is in the increasing and very rapid and very sophisticated automation of the surveillance side of drone technology? Yeah, um... Actually, I don't think I disagree with any of that, actually. I um, shouldn't. It was brilliant. Um, <laughs> I, I would be the last to deny it, Spencer. And um, the reason, actually, I, I, speaking for both of us, I guess, um, <coughs> the reason that we've actually not emphasized the hardware in this presentation, or even in what it is that we write about this, is we think that, that the writing often tends to focus um, on the hardware without really paying attention to the granular level of regulation and legal review that is the part that would actually constrain it in any meaningful way. And we think that that is simply much less well known. It's also, and I wouldn't leave the sort of our plea to the Department of Defense for transparency. When we launched into this, we wrote an initial paper before the ban call came out that was essentially directed at DOD and saying, you guys have got to be a lot more transparent about this if you want to bring anybody along in this process over the long term. Uh, and still think that that's an enormously important part. So from, I guess, our standpoint, we 
think that what needs to be focused on in the public eye and certainly what we bring best to the table is the ability to sort of get people to think about what uh, granular, uh, gradual legal regulation looks like, what weapons review looks like, how you have to sort of consider these things, um, rather than thinking, you know, 50 years down the road or 100 years down the road to something that doesn't yet exist. What does it look like in terms of this now? So I, I don't think we disagree about that. Um, second, I do agree that the miniaturization and, um, or maybe I could put this another way, the the notion of many UAVs are starting to look in a certain sense like a missile of some kind. Another way to think about this would be that um, we're not actually trying to improve the UAV so much as we're trying to improve the Tomahawk missile, um, making it smaller, making it more precise. And it's quite true that... Uh, Missile technologies for a long time have been, you know, it's the fire and forget concept. You hit the button and then it's going to go off and go wherever it's supposed to go. And the question of whether one builds into that some further capacity to be able to decide on the way there, what target it ought to pick, um, that is a very big legal crosshold, crossroads, and one that I think the standards actually are and really should be very, very high for for that. And on the increasing surveillance issue, I completely agree, I think. And we are not focused on it in part uh, in this particular paper because the kind of the ban took us by surprise and it's a ban about weapons uh, and lethal use of weapons, but I would not, I, I completely agree about the surveillance question. So I, I would just add, I mean, we, we were focusing here also on autonomous lethal machines. Uh, I, I think your, your question also gets at the, the inevitable fact that different technology streams are going are, are gonna to come together. So, for example, as we build uh, uh, more and more automated and ultimately autonomous machines, we're also going to see evolution in ordinance and, 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 and what it is that the, the, the payload that's being delivered. So, for example, it's not just that we're going to see more and more automated machines capable of delivering a 500-pound bomb, um, but we may end up with, 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 with highly autonomous machines that are able to deliver uh, 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 disabling uh, 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 weapons, for example, that, 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 need not, that need not kill. Carol. What are your concerns about the spread of this technology for automated lethal weapons spreading to terrorist groups and rogue nations? I mean, short of constraints on the development of these new technologies, what can the Western countries or the benevolent countries do to prevent these weapons from being obtained by people who have really bad intentions? Uh, I, I'm very nervous about it, in part because it's inevitable. Um, I, you know, I think there's often, I, I, I think when it comes to weapon technologies, there's often too much emphasis uh, uh, placed on the idea that if the United States would keep these technologies in the box, that somehow they wouldn't spread globally. Uh, I, I think these automation technologies, including weaponized ones, are going to spread inevitably, in part because, as Ken says, uh, 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 autonomous weapons or automated weapons, the basic technology there, the sensors and, and integrating sensors with analytic uh, capabilities and that sort of thing, are not that different from the commercialized versions of systems that would uh, I, 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 perform elder care or drive cars, et cetera. Um, so I think the idea that you would keep 
this technology in the box if only the United States wouldn't deploy it, um, I, I, I think is a, is, is, a, is, is a false path. Better, therefore, to think about with some inevitable development and spread of, of technology in this area, what kinds of rules can the United States help set up and enforce? And that's what we're talking about doing through uh, uh, the laws of war and especially by uh, demonstrating in as transparent ways as possible a set of best practices that we adopt internally and ideally in cooperation with, with like-minded allies that basically set a standard for behavior and use of these systems. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think it, it's inevitable that, uh, that automated systems, uh, ultimately autonomous systems, will be used by others. Um, one of the things that we can do is try to set up a system of law and norms that allows us to, uh, that, that puts us in a better uh, position to uh, 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 condemn those practices and raise the cost of others using them outside of these rules. Uh, next new question is Bill. Yeah, first let me say this is a great discussion for me. You know, I've been covering defense for a long time, and I very rarely have mixed feelings about an issue. And but uh, <laughs> drone strikes is is clearly one. I mean, uh, I'm with General Mattis on killing terrorists, but. I would feel differently if the Chinese took out a Falun Gong house in California. Another uh, Hoover fellow, General <laughs> <laughs> uh, My question goes to uh, the proliferation of drones. They're out there. It's the genies out of the bottle. Everybody wants one or is getting them. And uh, what are the prospects that they, there will be some kind of international push for an agreement? And won't this, in effect, be used for the issue of lawfare, which is to constrain the U.S. while the others uh, go on unrestrained. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not hopeful for when, when, it, when it comes to constraining through law the proliferation of armed UAV technologies. Um, I mean, when, when we look back at our early, you know, 2001, 2002, uh, uh, armed drone operations, right? It was a surveillance drone that we, you know, like taped a, a, a missile to. Um, and these are, th these are not tech, these are not difficult technologies for um, hostile actors, whether state or non-state actors to develop on their own. It's hard to develop highly, highly accurate ones. It's hard to develop uh, systems that also have the, 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 the uh, intelligence infrastructure, support, uh, uh, logistics, et cetera, that we have for, 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 for waging, uh, I think, a, a steady and very broad campaign. But the, the technology for using, sending over the border a, a bomb, a missile, I think is a is a very, very easy technology and one that I, I am not hopeful that things like export controls or something like that would be very, very effective at at, at restraining. I think it's too easy to um, I, I think I think the, the, the technology is actually a pretty easy technology. I, I think, um, you know, when when um, uh, I don't know exactly what form this is going to take. But when I hear presentations about drone proliferation techno uh, uh, drone technology proliferation, 
Um, I wish I heard more. I wish I knew more about what the counter drone technologies are that are being developed. Um, because, you know, one again, I'd like to look at the lessons of history. And, you know, one of the lessons of history in military technology is there's this constant race, right, between offensive and defensive <coughs> capabilities and, 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 and new technologies drive uh, demand for counter technologies. And I think we're going to see that. I don't know in exactly what form, but I think we're going to see that in, in in the drone context in terms of being able to shoot them down, in terms of uh, being able to jam them and, and, and so forth. So I think, uh, I guess the bottom line is I think the, uh, the solution to the proliferation and the danger that uh, drones pose to us and our allies will more likely be found in the form of technological counters than legal ones. Um, uh, uh, that said, I think part of the, the enterprise that Ken and I are talking about is uh, uh, to develop and promote a set of rules that raises the political costs, the diplomatic costs for those who violate those those rules. Uh, uh, and then I, I'd finally just add another sort of uh, I, I, I technology point. This goes back to, to Spencer's earlier uh, uh, comment. In my mind, what's um, what's what, what scares me more than just the, the, the proliferation, the sort of horizontal proliferation of, of drones, what scares me more than, than that is the miniaturization of them. Um, uh, uh, the fact that they will become more and more difficult to detect, uh, I, I think, is scarier than just the, the sheer proliferation of, 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 of unmanned aerial uh, uh, machines that can, that can carry a destructive payload. And so in that regard, I think that we actually need to be going after Spencer, your former boss, uh, Chris Anderson, and do-it-yourself drones, because, of course, this is... How can I enlist? <laughs> <laughs> Let me know. Uh, Chris Anderson had left Wired Magazine as the editor and created a, a company that specializes in hobbyist drones at the small level, but this is, in fact, advancing by leaps and bounds the miniaturization um, questions that Spencer rightly raises. Uh, the other thing I would add to this is a slightly different point about the proliferation, but it goes to the point about China decides to hit some target. In, uh, and this is often framed as a kind of uh, admonition to the United States. You're going to regret, um, you reap what you sow, you're going to regret having permitted all of this. And I think that that's actually quite unfair to the U.S. government in this regard. It may be that if others were acquiring these systems, it would want to tighten up the rules for everybody. But the U.S. does not actually see its use of drones targeted killing and these things as special pleading on the part of, say, the superpower or whatever that is. Um, it does, in fact, see these things as being neutral rules that it sees as being applicable by other states if they were facing similar circumstances. Now, if it faced a lot of other adversaries who were also acquiring these things, it might well push for tighter rules on those, and we would encourage that in a lot of ways. Um, but I think that it is actually unfair to regard this as simply special pleading by the powerful actor that has them at this moment. And proliferation runs both ways. Uh, we have a deep interest as the United States in seeing that our NATO allies uh, acquire far more drones of far higher capability. And the resistance to that in Europe led when the French went into Mali. They, didn't, they had four drones, one of which was inoperative, and the newly installed socialist foreign uh, defense minister said in a speech, 
you know, incomprehensible <laughs> that uh, an aeronautical, I'm quoting one of New York, is that your article that I'm quoting? <laughs> I that, <Oops>. said it's <laughs> uh, incomprehensible that an aeronautical um, industrial power like France should not have these weapons and should not be able to use them because they are more precise. And this was the lesson of Libya when, when New York Times reporters come up with this list of civilian casualties, none of which I could tell from sort of the initial description of circumstances raised a sort of law of war problem. But in looking at that thought, it's very hard for me to believe that had they, the targeting not been done with drones, that list would have been a lot shorter. And so we actually need the proliferation of these technologies insofar as we actually believe that they are more precise um, and are capable of, of reducing the harm if a party is actually interested in doing that. And a follow-up on, on, on the lawfare part. The, uh, there's a debate here on drones. Uh, do you anticipate the UN or some international organization using lawfare to try to uh, uh, constrain U.S. drone development? What do you think? I mean, I, I think we're already seeing, I don't, uh, 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 law, the term lawfare is thrown, <laughs> thrown around a lot. Uh, it means different things to, 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 to many different people. I do think, I mean, I, I, I do think your question, though, gets at a, a, an important point that we were raising earlier, which is uh, this idea that if the United States cannot convincingly show that the law of war adequately can sort of handle these new technologies and that we are applying it in a consistent and reasonable way. And this also goes to, to Jack's point. And this is, you know, whether it's CIA, JSOC, whoever, if we can't show that on a consistent basis uh, uh, we are employing these rules, following them, you, and, and that they're striking good balances, uh, I think the movement to come in and replace the laws of war or overlay them with some other set of rules will grow. Uh, that's why I think the United States has a strategic interest in showing this is, a, this is actually a good set of rules that strikes good balances, that meets the demands and, and challenges that new technologies are, 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 are presenting. Do you have something to add, at least? Or? Well, I was just wondering if you could expand on what you started in the earlier part of the discussion about, like, the more scarier aspects of autonomous selection of targets. And at that point, when you have the proliferation of, of these type of technologies, and we're using them, and, and they're using them, and um, I think it, it almost kind of dehumanizes the whole idea of war and makes it more, you know, more of an easier choice. Mm -hmm. And probably there's proliferation of war in that sense when the cost to us and to the, and to the um, it just, I, I, it seems pointless in one sense to, if there's no um, cost to either side except mm -hmm. financial, you're developing these technologies. Um, that's when I think the proliferation of war and the desensitization of it is, is the scarier. Um, well, I think I'd, I'd respond to that in a couple of ways, and I'm sure Ken will will, will have some thoughts on on it too. The fir first one is to is to you know reiterate my point earlier that that's an that's a, an, a common argument, but it, and and it's one that 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 comes up with new technologies all the time, and in some ways we've already sort of crossed that um, that threshold long ago. I mean, the idea of fighting uh, 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 waging conflict from a distance where basically our forces are 
for the most part, out of harm's way, but we can reach the other guy's forces. Um, that's something, that's, a, that's a, a feature of air power. That's a feature of cruise missiles. This was an argument about the crossbow and the concern that, well, you know, uh, 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 honorable uh, uh, warfare was fought face to face. There is no obligation in, I think, ethically or uh, uh, legally to put yourself in harm's way when waging a war. I think the idea that of, of finding technological ways to that uh, permit you, that, that, that uh, uh, enable you to hit the other guy without being hit, uh, I, I, not only do I think that's a, a legal and ethical uh, way to wage war, but it's one that, uh, that, that, that we ought to be supporting. Now, there's a, a concern, though, I think that you're getting at that if you lower the cost the, the, the cost too much of using force, that we then kind of overuse it. Um, and that's, um, I, I, I have a few responses to that. I, I mean, the first, the, the first point is, um, I'm not sure that, um, that casualties um, are, are currently what's holding us back from using force uh, uh, in faraway regions, because we can do so with piloted, you know, remotely piloted drones. Taking the pilot out of it, I don't know, changes the, 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 the cost to us in a, in a significant way. But I'm also, uh, you know, I, I, I think if we want to get the right policy balance right of when is the use of force appropriate, right? When should the United States intervene? to deal with humanitarian crisis? When should the United States or other states uh, uh, use military force in order to deal with threats? Um, uh, I think trying to kind of micromanage uh, uh, the development of technology as a way of getting at that broader policy problem is very unlikely to strike the right balance. Um, I, 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 and, and indeed, while it's, it's possible that new technologies would enable uh, uh, low-cost interventions in some circumstances that we think would be terrible, uh, I, uh, they may also enable us to intervene in low-cost ways, in, in in ways that would be that would do great good, we may be able to deal with humanitarian emergencies through uh, uh, automated technologies that we wouldn't otherwise be able to uh, to deal with effectively. For example, and I guess the only follow-up I'd make to that would be that this is um, part of a sort of general argument about uh, that these technologies make the resort to force too easy. Um, and I think that the problem with that argument is, uh, first of all, that easier is not the same as too easy. And knowing that it's in fact easier, which in fact these technologies do, is not actually an answer to the question of whether it's too easy. Um, because I think the answer to too easy depends on whether the use of force that you're contemplating doing is lawful, whether it's ethical, whether it would meet the requirements of just war and these various things. Mm -hmm. And so the answer to too easy is not a sort of an economist balancing um, game, a sort of you know, efficient equilibrium. It's a moral question of whether the use of force that you're contemplating is justified. And if it is justified, then you are justified in doing it in a way that protects your people. Um, because 
you are doing it in some fashion because you reasonably believe that you are acting in self-defense, and it's not an obligation to sacrifice yourself in the process of defending yourself. You have to do that consistent with what the protection of civilians is all about. <laughs> but the idea, I mean, I, I'm increasingly surprised at some of the arguments that are made uh, toward the banning of killer robots and the rest that say honorable human beings fight homo sapien against homo sapien and think, no, actually they don't. Um, a side that reasonably believes it is the just side is not required to go into sort of combat on equal terms with the other side in this. It's required to do so in a way that protects the civilians. Um, and we also admit that each side is able to make its own judgment about whether its side is just because we're not able to sort of settle that. We're not God. Um, but we do wind up uh, saying that you aren't required to sacrifice yourself and put yourself into an arena to fight on the same terms as the other person. So I think that it's actually quite a troubling moral argument that we somehow have an obligation to expose our soldiers to risk in order to put their own political leadership under pressure not to overuse force. That's holding them as hostages, right? That's holding our own military people as hostages um, against the behavior of their political leaders, and I don't think you can run those two together. The decision about whether it's right, proper, just, legal to use force has to be kept separate from the question of whether you, once you're committed to doing that, do so in the least harmful way, including protection of civilians and protection of, of soldiers. I just wanted to ask about one of the objections you mentioned in your writing, which I thought was intriguing, which is that, well, if there were a war crime, we wouldn't know who to hold responsible. And I just wonder how you think about that. Hmm. So this raises the question of accountability and um, liability um, as well. And I guess I'd say that, that I'm very sympathetic to this argument because I think that one of the enormous um, protections that arises out of the laws of war is the notion that one holds people liable. Uh, and as is true in um, tort systems and product liability systems and the rest, there are forms of liability, but they're going to be really different because it somehow doesn't really seem quite right to hold the programmer responsible for a war crime in which the system could not reasonably have been said to have anticipated the kind of situation it was put in. And so the question of whether the human being disappears from the loop, so to speak, and all this from a liability standpoint, I think, is a very live um, question. Um, that said, I think the question of automation and autonomy and machine decision making that does take the mechanisms that we use to hold people who are conscious, intentional, conscience-bearing actors accountable but which don't apply to a machine, um, I hesitate to remove those until I see a pattern of the machine simply being able to do it in brute fact better than the human beings. And accountability is not actually an end in itself. Accountability in the war setting is a mechanism by which war crimes, liability, locking people up, um, all of these things are mechanisms by which we attempt to get actors in the battlefield to um, essentially meet the required levels of protection for civilians and, and those kinds of things. Um, and it's not an end in itself. 
If it turns out, and I make zero prediction about this, that certain kinds of technologies enable one to achieve simply overwhelmingly better results in terms of safety, even though the individual accountable actors disappear, I'm good with that. And we do it all the time with technologies in domestic life. If self-driving cars turn out to be a better machine technology, we're not going to wind up going back and finding that individual programmer and charging them. I mean, you know, we may have different kinds of mechanisms and insurance and all sorts of things like that. But at some point, we wind up saying um, it's not an end in itself to hold somebody accountable. The end is actually the net increase in safety. And if the machines can do it better, and I have no idea whether they ever would, at some point, I think that we're right to sort of you know, make that move. listening to the Lawfare Podcast, produced in collaboration with the Brookings Institution. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.